I'm Marty. And I'm Lizzie. And welcome to Sex and Consent, a feminist podcast exploring the experiences, attitudes, and myths surrounding sex and consent. You're about to listen to our Consent and Coercion 101 series, which we recorded in 2021. Across these six episodes, we're going to dive into several topics that closely relate to sex and consent. This includes themes like sexual coercion, patriarchy, rape culture, masculinity, and much more. These episodes are really going to get you across the different concepts and terminology that we're going to explore throughout the podcast. So think of them like the foundation episodes or basically the best place to start listening. Cool. So let's get into it. Let's. (laughs) Hi, everyone. It's Marty here. Before we dive in, I want to give a really big content warning for this series. In this particular episode, we discuss sex and sexual violence and refer specifically to sexual violence in LGBTQIAP communities, sexual violence perpetrated toward men, teachers assaulting students and gang rape. Please take care of yourself while listening, including turning off if need be. If things come up for you, please reach out to your support network. If you need to speak to someone immediately, you can always call the 1-800-RESPECT hotline. Oh, and this episode also contains some strong language. Hello, everybody. Today, I am calling in from the land of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation here in Melbourne. I pay my respects to Wurundjeri elders past and present and am in reverence to the ways they've connected with and and have taken care of this land for thousands of years. I want to share something about an important figure in Wurundjeri history, um, a, a man named Simon Wonga. He was the son of Billy Bellary, um, who was a highly respected leader um, of that time. Simon Wonga then became the leader of the Woiwurrung clans when his father, Billy Bellary, I hope I'm saying that correctly, died in 1846, so he was 22 years old at the time. In 1863, Wonga and his maternal cousin, William Barrack, led their remaining people across the Black Spurs song line to the Upper Yarra and established the Corandirk um, Mission Station. I couldn't find how to pronounce that, but I hope I'm saying that correctly, Corandirk. So this was established as a reserve for the Abor- um, Aboriginal people of South Central Victoria and it was operated under Australia's first administrative framework to quote-unquote manage Australian, uh, rather Aboriginal affairs. And the residents here fought against efforts to control their lives and their sustained resistance, I'm quoting from the website here, their sustained resistance is often cited as among the first Indigenous campaigns for land rights and self-determination. Oh, wow, that's that's really cool. cool. Where are you calling in from, Maris? This week I am, as I have been all weeks. Every other week, pretty much. (laughs) I'm calling in from Gumbangi land. And as it's locked down, I haven't been able to attend any of my language classes. However, as I mentioned last week, there are some really great online resources that the teacher has generously created and shared with us so that people can continue to learn um, wherever they are. Um, And so I've been listening to some and I'm going to speak a sentence to you. Oh, let's go. (laughs) This is so exciting. I I hope that I am going to pronounce it correctly, but I've been practicing. Niya Marala Nariniwa Naingi. So I'll try again. Niya Marala Nariniwa Naingi. And this means we all live on a beautiful earth. 
Wow, Maris! <laughs> That's beautiful. Yeah, it's really cool. So um, the elder who teaches the classes, he makes these resources and puts all the words together and then individually explains what each word means. So uh-huh. there's t- tons of resources, which I'm having fun listening to and practicing along with. Um, cool. And on that um, page, like I also watched this video um, of a Gumbangi man called Ricky Buchanan and he's fluent in Gumbangi language and he teaches kids in schools all around the area. Mm. Um, and I, when I watched his video, it was, yeah, it was really, um, I guess, like moving and he was saying, that it makes him feel really proud when he hears language being used and that he hopes over the next five years it'll be much more common to hear First Nations language from a wider variety of people. So if anyone listening is inspired to learn some language, you could do some research into whether there are resources for the country you are living on, um, either over the internet or if you have a cultural, like, centre locally or like your land council or whatever, they might be able to point you in the right direction of where you could learn language. Um, Or if you're interested in learning Gumbangi, there are resources available on YouTube. And if you can't find them, just just send us an email and I'll link you up with them. Awesome. And you've definitely really inspired me to learn some more Woiwurrung. So when we're out of lockdown, I'm going to head to the local library and see what I can find. Nice. So, Maris, here we are, the final episode (laughs) of our Consent and Coercion 101 series. It's feeling really good. So good. I mean, the world is a bit fucked up at the moment or feeling really Mm. heavy this week. I know that you and I have spoken about that outside of the podcast, but I feel really um, proud and excited to be here. Um, That being said, if you're here listening now, we really encourage you to go back and listen to the whole series from the beginning so you can get across the terms and the concepts that we're going to explore in this podcast, which all kind of culminate in this very episode, actually. So final episode, like I said, of our Consent and Coercion 101 series, our, um, our hope for this series was basically to give you the tools and the frameworks to make sense of your experiences, which we mentioned in our introduction to the podcast. And yeah, and to be able to discuss sexual violence and and, and the patriarchy and rape culture with your friends, with your people, with your community, with the greater mm-hmm. aim to then shift our misogynist, cis-normative, <laughs> patriarchal and white supremacist culture. <laughs> That's the aim. <laughs> Um, yeah, so thanks so much, everyone, for listening and being a part of this shift. Um, and before we launch into this last 101 episode, we want to quickly tell you guys about the next series that you'll see following this Consent and Coercion series. Exactly. So next up is um, what we're broadly calling right now our storytelling series. So this is where we're going to hear people's stories of normalised coercion Um, Obviously, that's Maris's um, specialisation, as well as everyday misogyny and rape culture. And we're going to unpack them together using the concepts and the frameworks that we've explored here in the Consent and Coercion 101 series. So it's kind of going to be like standing in the kitchen or having a drink Mm -hmm. with your friends and, and discussing the shit experiences you've had under patriarchy in a way that we can better understand them and then how we can address them together. Absolutely. And, you know, that's definitely been a huge part of my feminist learning over the years, talking about 
the shit experience you have with your friends and it just brings so much more of a deeper understanding and yeah knowledge um, yeah and this this approach that we're going to do for the what we're calling the storytelling series at the moment um is inspired by the way that i wrote my phd so i collected all these different participants um stories from them or experiences from them and i converted them into like narrative so creative non-fiction um and then i unpacked and analyzed those stories within the rest of the chapters so that's the kind of like rough inspiration that we're we're taking to do this series yeah bringing that phd to life as we say (laughs) as we say (laughs) not that it's not alive but you know what i mean bringing it to the people bringing it to probably more people than just my friends and my mom (laughs) (laughs) as if no it'll be more more widely read than that but anyway (laughs) so after this episode please stick around the first storytelling episode um will start basically right after this episode i think it will be available yeah it's gonna roll on over over. Um, (laughs) which, which brings us to this episode now our last episode about consent and coercion 101 series and it is all about men and masculinity so why is this? Well, simply because the overwhelming majority of sexual violence is perpetrated by men and it deserves attention and discussion. And um, in a similar spirit to the anti-victim blaming um, kind of approach that we take, we're interested in looking at the source of the issue, not just the people who are impacted by that issue. Mm. So in this episode, we're going to explore the current context of male-perpetrated sexual coercion and sexual violence in Australia, the social structures, cultures, myths that create that context. Um, And so like basically in other words, like who's doing it and why are they doing it? Yep. Awesome. Thank you, Maris. So let's dive right in. We're going to start at the, you know, at the context, like you just said, Maris, and perhaps the most quote unquote logical point, which is with some numbers, right? With some stats. (laughs) With some stats. So most listeners will know that the overwhelming majority of sexual violence is perpetrated by men, specifically cisgendered men, um, and that the overwhelming majority of um, victim survivors are female. So statistically, data, for instance, from the state of Victoria shows that women make up 92% of victim survivors, while 99% of offenders are male. And these stats are consistent across Australia and um, the world, really. So, Mm -hmm. yeah, they're pretty big numbers. But when when we're talking about female victim survivors, Maris, we do want to mention here that that wouldn't necessarily include, you know, all trans and non-binary or like non-cis people's experiences of sexual assault because of the different barriers they face to reporting, right? Yeah. So, yeah, no, it wouldn't because trans and non-binary people as a group experience actually the highest rates of sexual violence, but then can at times not be well represented in like police data for instance because of the barriers that they face to reporting you know the the reluctance to report to systems that ru- routinely underdeserve actively discriminate and oppress them like the like the police um yeah. so as i mentioned in our rape culture episode australian research shows that 50% of trans respondents have been sexually assaulted at least once compared to 14% of the general, general population. Um, and on top of that, trans women of colour are 20% more likely to suffer multiple instances of sexual harassment than other women, more likely to experience sexual assault by a stranger and are twice as likely to experience being sexually assaulted 10 or more times than other women. Like, those are incredibly um, 
you know, horrible statistics. And I guess what we're kind of saying here is that 92% of victim survivors and uh, as women and 99% of offenders are as male. It's like we don't know whether that's fully capturing yeah. this experience. Um, yeah. Yeah, exactly. They're really um, harrowing statistics. So keep keep that in mind when you're thinking about the reality of sexual violence mm. in Australia and globally as well. So an important figure as well is that somewhere between one in six or one in ten men are sexually abused before the age of 16 with the majority of the perpetrators being male. So while we know that all people, like we've discussed in this podcast, we know that all people are capable of and do enact sexual violence and coercion, statistically men are those who are doing the most. Mm -hmm. So we do need to look at that. Absolutely, the majority of sexual violence is enacted by men. But what's also really important to remember here is most commonly the perpetrator is known to the victim. In other words, in the majority of cases of sexual violence, men are perpetrating sexualized violence against someone that they know. So it's like this is important to remember because it's like not that stranger monster down an alleyway, which is, you know, that kind of narrative we do get encouraged to think about, um, yeah, through plot lines and tv shows and all that kind of stuff um Mm. most sexual violence is actually enacted without weapons without physical violence and you know here's the fact of it most commonly sexualized violence is enacted by partners friends and dates most common actually which like i learned in a webinar i was at recently is that the most common way women are experiencing sexual violence in australia is actually in their relationships like abusive relationships that where their male partner is abusive towards them and using sexual violence as a part of that abuse Mm -hmm. which is you know that reality stands in really stark contrast to the way that rape culture makes us believe through different rape myths that rape is this deviant act you might remember that from the rape culture episode so i.e what you just said maris like rape is this thing that happens in an alleyway by a monstrous stranger and it's just not true. The majority of sexual violence is happening with people who know each other or um, who are indeed together, like you just said, or in that sort of like mm. dating, friend, acquaintance context totally. um, and inside our homes. So coming back to what I said before and what we've said um you know, several times, I think, in this series, I'm sure, is that while people of any gender are capable of sexual violence, it's largely men enacting it. I want to talk about that discrepancy there, right? Like that uh, disproportionate representation of men perpetrating sexual violence, be it anywhere along that sexual violence continuum that we discussed in the last episode, I believe, which was, you know, from normalised everyday, quote unquote, um, you know, ignoring somebody's refusal or pushing past their their consent um, in, in order to coerce them, right, or through to the more forceful acts of sexual violence. Now, I'm pretty confident that none of our listeners would be surprised to hear that men perpetrate the majority of, of, of this violence because it's salient knowledge. But why is this? Like how have we almost come to expect this as, mm-hmm. as a society, as a community? Mm-hmm. So what we're going to do now, I guess, is, um, yeah, like let's look at like what are the driving forces behind mm-hmm. male-perpetrated sexual yeah. violence. Yeah, and before we do jump into that, I just want to make one more comment around, um, I guess, like rates of sexual violence within um, same-sex relationships and things like that because, again, in 
same-sex couples, they there are the same rates of domestic violence or intimate partner violence as in heterosexual couples. But yeah, there, there's like other power differentials that are at play within those relationships. Like it's not just mm. the patriarchy, but the heteropatriarchy, for example. Then there's a study, for example, in Australia that found that about 26% of LGBTQIA plus people have experienced sexual assault within same-sex relationships. So it's just kind of like we are focusing on male-perpetrated sexual violence um, because it, mm. it is the most common. Like men do perpetrate the vast majority of sexual violence, but that doesn't have to be towards a cishet woman. Sexual violence can be mm-hmm. perpetrated by men towards members of LGBTQIP plus communities and sexual violence is also perpetrated within those communities. So, yeah, I just wanted to make it clear that while we often, while we often speak from our own experience as cishet women and, and our interactions with, with men, um, this isn't something that's by any means exclusive to cishet context. Um, yeah, and, and I just wanted to note that queer people are often actually targeted more than cishet women. So just, yeah, keeping that in mind and a lot of these different ways that um, coercion mm-hmm. is normalised or sexual violence is normalised apply to those contexts as well. Exactly. We want to be really clear about that. And while we might not, uh, for instance, um, you know, we want to keep these episodes to an hour, right? So we we mm-hmm. might not always be able to fit everything in an episode, but we are really committed to exploring all different um, all different facets and areas and, and, and people within sex and consent. Yes. Um, so in relation to men's violence towards women, unsurprisingly, the patriarchy plays a huge role in this. <laughs> but it's mm. not enough to just say, oh, it's the patriarchy and, like, that's that. We need to break it down into, you know, more p- pieces of, like, what part of, um, yeah, patriarchy is causing what thing. So think yeah. of like the patriarchy in this sense, Lizzie was saying the other day, like as like a pie and um, you can like slice that pie into particular patriarchal symptoms that then influence the way, you know, namely cis-hetero men think and behave. Yeah, exactly. That pie reference is really helpful for me. <laughs> and so what I like um, about the way that we're going to, we're going to, do this in this episode is we're going to like call back to the content that we've discussed throughout the whole consent and coercion 101 series Mm -hmm. so I think when you listen to this you'll be able to remember the frameworks and the terms um that that we discussed and and now we're going to be more or less applying those to the current context which is in this case the persistent rates of sexual violence against women and girls that actually hasn't really you can um like fact check or back me here, Maris, we haven't really made huge gains despite like overall rights, you know, improving for women more generally. Mm. It's a very persistent uh, public health, social Mm. community issue. Certainly. And I think um, Gloria Steinem, in a book I read like a little while ago, I did like find this really useful. She's talking about how like, you know how you just said there's these progress or like, um, you know, rights overall, like there's legislative improvements and all that. But what mm. she says is that also results in backlash. So it's yeah, like always. That, that can be in any movement, like whether it's, you know, for race or um, yeah, sex or whatever it is. It's like when there's yeah. improvements, there's going to be further efforts from the oppressing class to, against the oppressed class. Yeah, so um, that's interesting to note. So first, um, the first kind of 
slice of the pie that we wanted to look at is male entitlement. So remember that brand tagline for the patriarchy that we've mentioned in another episode, a world made by men for men. Um, This is, you know, male entitlement is then what men are left with for in this world Mm. made by men for men. They are like, oh, Mm. I'm entitled to all this stuff. So male entitlement is a belief that men are owed sex because they are men. It is a belief that men are inherently entitled to women's bodies and sexuality and they draw on rape myths to support this entitlement, i.e. She kissed me earlier, she flirted with me, or I bought her dinner, I bought her a drink. This entitlement sees sex as transactional and it suggests that when a woman accepts a drink or flirts or whatever goes on the date, that she is entering into this transaction and therefore should be prepared to go through with it. And like, mm. you know, lest she's, if she doesn't, she's leading him on or whatever. Yeah. Um, and so like entitlement is really closely associated with the objectification of women because men seeing women as objects leads to these attitudes of ownership. Objects can be bought, owned and acquired. And I guess like this really reminds me to, of the, um, rape immunity laws, which we have mentioned in a couple of other episodes, which were based in historical beliefs that women became men's property upon marriage And therefore, she was considered as giving like this eternal, continuous sex as he now basically owned her. So while these laws were abolished in the late 80s, early 90s, what I really like to make clear is that they linger in the mentalities held about and toward women today. So like, you know, any norms and laws that were persistent and present over the last you know, well, many, many years, but like, let's say the last hundred years, not only are there still people alive today that, you know, had them as the norm for their life, mm. they're also like been passed on, you know, father to son and, 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 you know, women hold them as well. Like those beliefs that this is what I must do as a woman or what other women must do, uh, women and men, both police, um, that kind of, I, sorry, not police, perpetuate that idea that men are entitled to women's bodies and sexualities. So, and the thing I also want to point out is this isn't always in an explicit way of like um, men actually going around thinking I'm entitled to her body and I'm going to take this thing from her because I took her on a date or whatever. And so like an example from my PhD where a male participant was talking all about like his intense arousal, his like high sex drive and all of this. And we were talking about how like it often overrode like he was kind of saying consent is simple sure like I understand you know you shouldn't persist past a certain point but in practice it's really hard because of my sex drive because of my high arousal like men just have this naturally high sex drive so on um and he was kind of saying like it's a lot harder in the moment to think oh maybe I should stop she doesn't want me to be doing this or whatever if she's giving signs of unwillingness And then I said to him, like, you know, I was asking him, does this relate to male entitlement for you? Like, do you feel a sense of entitlement? And he was like, absolutely not. I don't relate this to entitlement. I don't believe I have some sort of entitlement as a man, so on. But what my argument is, is that him prioritizing his sex drive, his his apparently like, you know, sexual arousal and desire and whatever, which women have too, (laughs) Mm. um, like him prioritizing that over observing her signs of unwillingness non-consent is entitlement like the fact Mm. that he can fully understand consent and like you know communication and everything up until a point where he's like oh no but now I'm really horny and I actually 
but I really want to have sex. And like, it's kind of like that all goes out the window and suddenly, yeah, I'm just going to do this because like I'm horny now. And I'm like, that is entitlement. And it's like not that explicit thing. He didn't think he was entitled, but he showed he was entitled. Yeah. I think that's an exquisite example because, mm. yeah, it, I, I think that's why a male entitlement as a term is quite like triggering, if mm. you will, because a lot of people will be like, I don't wake up in the morning and think about my entitlement and how I own Mm -hmm. women and how I get what I want. But it's through these um, assumptions and and self-prioritization. Exactly. um, Thinking about what they want, not what their partner wants. Yeah. That just happens like almost they they would say naturally. Mm. Like, oh, but it's just, it just just naturally happens. It's like, no, yeah, that's your ingrained socialisation to believe you are entitled to what you want over what somebody else wants. Boom. (laughs) That is, yeah, that's a perfect articulation of that. And it really rolls into the next thing. So another part of patriarchy that influences male perpetrated sexual violence is those rigid gender roles um, that we've talked about Mm. uh, in the 101 series. And in particular here, like the view that men are active pursuers of sex Mm-hmm. And women are, and, and people of other genders are more passive and, you know, women receive the sex, for instance. <laughs> and that true men, like red-blooded men, always want sex 24-7 around the clock down to fuck. So this attitude is, like, supported by rape culture too, which, Maris, you mentioned before. Mm-hmm. So, for instance, if if you recall, like, the rape myth, uh, you know, that he he didn't mean to. He didn't mean to do that thing. He didn't mean to push past someone's clearly communicated non-consent, their refusal. He just misunderstood the situation. And how can you blame him? How can you blame a man with a boner? Like you just Mm -hmm. said, like that intense arousal. He's a sexual animal. Like you can't Mm -hmm. expect so much from him. So, yeah, that's a rape myth, of course. Mm -hmm. Now, to add to that, as part of these rigid gender roles that see men as active, hungry sex lords (laughs) that would never turn down a root, boys and... A root? Yeah, I hate it. Go on. It's a much bigger word. I know, it's so... I mean, I'm trying to play into the... (laughs) Yeah, no, no, I know, I know. Mind you, I've thrown it around a bit lately anyway so would never turn down sex boys and men in many cases are expected to have sex with as many chicks as many women as possible Mm. and be really fucking sure that their mates know about it Mm. so think about the luke lazarus case that we've mentioned a few times do you know what he did after raping saxon mullins in a king's cross alleyway he asked her to put her name on a list of girls or women he'd had sex with in his fucking phone, like a literal trophy list. Can you imagine doing that? Like he asked her, hey, can you put your name? Like didn't even know it. Did you not even know it? Like what the fuck? It's like a hunt. That Um, is disgusting. Yeah. So like full trophy list vibe. Who were the the intended viewers of this list? The boys, of course, you know? So, um, also a part of this rigid gender role, there is also the attitude that men don't want sex. They don't want to make love. They want to fuck. <laughs> so, none of that, like, tender, girly sex that women like. No, just fucking where they can, you know, dominate and demonstrate their sexual prowess. 
And because of the attitude that women are like passive recipients, quote unquote, mm. of sex, because women are there to be convinced, in mm. other words, coerced to have sex, mm-hmm. there's no real reason to properly check in ongoingly mm. for signs or cues of consent because, hey, you're a man and you have, you have an uncontrollable sex drive because you're an uncontrollable sexual beast <laughs> that needs to report back to the boys. Mm. Right. So let's take a step back for a second. Is this actually the reality for all boys and men do men actually want to have sex 24 7 do men just want to fuck like porn stars all the time no of course they don't <laughs> like i know plenty plenty of men who and i've had sex with plenty of men who have not done this you know so no of course it's not the reality or or have done it sometimes but don't do it all the time and don't actually naturally want to or like even if they have and like yeah precisely but in a patriarchal context you can see here how some like cisgendered heterosexual boys and men would feel that to be anything other than the dominating crazed sex lord that scores heaps of pussy like if they're not that can you see how that might pull their sexuality or their identity into question. Mm. Like, in other words, they might think, fuck, I'm not a true man if I don't perform this way. I need Mm. to score. I need to dominate. I need to report back to the boys because if I don't, maybe they won't respect me. They won't include me. They won't love me. I won't have any status. I won't belong Mm. because if I don't score, maybe they'll say I'm gay. And in a homophobic and transphobic patriarchy that degrades everything considered feminine, what could possibly be worse than being considered gay, mm-hmm. right? So can you see how this angst might influence a boy or a man's decision to disregard consent, to coerce or to force someone? This is why we see gender, um, rather rigid gender roles, as one of the direct driving forces behind male-perpetrated sexual mm. violence. Now, Maris, you've kind of touched on this um, uh, in other, or rather, we've both touched on this, but we do want to point out that obviously not everybody subscribes to this sexual script or this expression of gender. This is just what we've observed. This is what we've experienced, and then studied, obviously, in Maris's case, in a cis hetero um, context within our, our culture. Um, this isn't necessarily the reality for the LGBTQIAP plus communities or for cold communities, culturally and linguistically diverse communities of which neither Maris or I belong. I can't speak to like this experience within a Muslim context or a First Nations context, for instance, although I know obviously patriarchy exists in lots of different spaces. We we, we just want to point out that this is what we see and this is what we've experienced in our context. Mm. Yes. And I think it's also really um, kind of important to mention here that all of these stereotypes and assumptions about men's like constant want for sex, their uncontrollable sex drives, it actually has really horrible impacts on men and has been shown to be um, a reason that men end up having sex that they don't want. So like it might not necessarily be that they're getting coerced by another person, but like you mentioned, like if they feel like they have to have sex to live up to these traditional notions of masculinity, it's like they could be just they're like getting coerced by society <laughs> by, by a system yeah, yeah. A system which happens to women as well like which yeah but like you know that also happens to men and what's more like it's particularly damaging for boys and men who are same-sex attracted because they get sent this message like you know from so young as you explained with the kind of like homophobic um you know quote-unquote insult so they get sent this message that 
heterosexuality is compulsory for them. Mm. And it's like, to be a man, you have to have sex with heaps of women. And therefore, men who are gay may actually end up feeling pressured to have heterosexual sex when they're not interested in women. Like, it's it's actually super wow. messed up and sad. Um, yeah. Also, another way that this really negatively impacts men is for men who are victims of sexual assault, um, they're, like, when there's this assumption that men always want sex and would never turn down sex, there's a reluctance to believe amongst, like, society, um, that men have been sexually assaulted. And, like, whilst it is quite rare for women to sexually assault men, I mean, it still totally does happen, um, and there's this societal dismissal of it as harmless. And if you think about when it's, like, say, a teacher to a student, like a female teacher oh, male student, there's actually been, like, within the media and everywhere, like, jokes and comments that he's, like, what a lucky guy. Like, oh, he must Lucky kid, it. lucky it's, kid. It's, it's really, really horrendous. That's um, fucked which obviously then makes that person feel like, you know, maybe less like they can um, get the help that they might need, talk about it with their mates, whatever. Um, so, yeah, there's this societal dismissal of it, of it as harmless, which completely minimises the survivor's experience. Conversely, when a, a man is raped by another man, which is actually a lot more common, a lot of survivors don't come forward for being considered, for fear of being considered, sorry, like that they're either weak, inadequate or gay which goes back to yeah what you're talking about lizzie about how effectively men and boys police each other by using homophobia which is like a tenant of misogyny mm. so basically they're policing people to stick to the patriarchy um, and punishing those who step outside of patriarchal gender roles and rewarding those who maintain it mm -hmm. and i've an example from my phd that i'd like to share that demonstrates a bit of what i'm talking about it was a guy who said you know he was talking about when he's felt coerced um and he said this it's sort of like there's there's a stigma that if you say no to a woman as a man then it's like oh what's wrong with you are you gay or whatever so i feel like i've probably slept with women that i didn't want to sleep with because i felt like i couldn't say no mm. um and i had another participant who also shared that in high school he was bullied and the bullies kind of like final digging remark would often be about how he was like a little virgin um, and he commented to me about how, like, this could have certainly played into his, I guess, pardon me, I just burped, sorry, everyone, um, eagerness. <laughs> <laughs> um, eagerness with women. Like, you know, if he has been bullied at high school and he's feeling like shit about himself or whatever, like, does, how much does that then play into his pressuring for women to participate in sexual acts with him? Yeah, like the eagerness, the mm. eagerness to score, the eagerness to have sex to prove like, hey, no, I'm not, totally. I'm not, I'm not a virgin. Like I am a man, you know, mm -hmm. proving, exactly. proving themselves. Um, yeah, and other men in my study actually were also really explicit about how they felt that pressure to coerce um, women into sex from their mates and like even were saying, you know, at the end of a night if their mates went home and had picked up and they hadn't, they would feel like a failure um, and all of this other stuff. So it shows how men, yeah, police each other around these gender roles and particularly um, expectations about sex and like them actually contributing, you know, to coerce coercion and feeling pressured themselves to have sex. So wow. these gender roles, they have a lot to answer for, right? <laughs> they do. <laughs> they suck. They suck. We yes, don't like them. No. And what I wanted to like move into from this is gender roles create what is called a sexual script. And the script is this kind of like outdated and like not legit. 
understanding of men as pursuant, <laughs> dominant, active, and women as gatekeepers who offer this tokenistic resistance that men are expected to push past. So that's what this script is like. Man instigates. Woman's like, oh no, I couldn't possibly. And then he's like, I'll instigate again. And it's like this. Cre- it creates this like complete normalization of coercion. So like when men use it, use coercion, it's kind of like, oh, but they're just fulfilling their role in the script. Um, mm. And here's a like quote from a guy in my PhD who basically said like when I was so like guys when they're at a younger age would just either be like oh she's frigid or she's just holding out like it's either that you're dissing them saying they're frigid or oh yeah she's just playing this game because she doesn't want to appear as a slut Um, Mm. and so that's what that idea of like this tokenistic resistance um, and then on the other hand or she's holding out and she needs to be convinced so it's like either way it justifies their use of coercion yeah, right. Yeah. That's so, disturbing. Yeah. <laughs> and I know and I totally know that. Like I've I've heard that play out in school. Fucking after school too. Mm. Like Yeah. Um, and yeah, it's kind of like this you know, what men are supposed to be doing it because like they've got to convince all these frigid chicks or like they're you know, it's just yeah. Like it's um, yeah, it's their role. It's just mm. something they've got to do. Um and another thing to point out in this is like it's really important to note that these sexual scripts are like a heterosexual thing so that's another reason that researchers say describes why less routine sexual coercion is happening outside of heterosex because there aren't these prescriptive socio-culturally sanctioned scripts that people follow because like you know if you think about movies tv shows and all of this like lgbtqip plus people are totally underrepresented whereas like yeah heterosexual people overrepresented and so there's so much focus on like man woman sexual script romantic journey whatever so you see so much more normalization of coercion yeah. visibly in those kind of spaces celebrated um, yeah it's celebrated it's called romance <laughs> yeah, it's well. called seduction <laughs> yeah 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 so like you know lgbtqip plus people obviously aren't made up by the you know heteronormative cis man cis woman um and so obviously that traditional sexual script doesn't apply but other power differentials do so yeah i guess this is just another you know good thing to bring up um as to what like why there can still be of course and there is still sexual coercion and sexual violence but it will look different of course to the way it happens in heterosex awesome thank you okay so i feel like We obviously have to say something as well about the fact that under patriarchy, conviction rates for sexual assault are super low. Mm -hmm. Um, And I I feel like we need to say something around like, you know, surely some men who who, um, enact sexual violence are galvanised by this a little Mm -hmm. bit, right? Like knowing that if they push past someone's refusal, push past someone's consent, coerce someone into doing something that only meets their needs. The system has their back. The courts have their back. The cops have their back. And Maris, you could probably talk to that cop piece better than I can from your um, line of work. Mm. Cops can be terrible victim blamers. Totally. Yeah. Victim blaming. And like, as you, as we've said before, the, the tagline of patriarchy by men for men, like that infiltrates all systems, right? So the judicial yeah. system, so on. Um, yeah. And also a lot of the ways that rape commonly is commonly perpetrated is 
isn't um, hasn't been at least considered illegal. Like affirmative consent laws are only just starting to be brought into legislation now, which means that a lot of like what is actually rape has been kind of in this quote unquote gray area of like gray area. Yeah, totally. Also, just want to like um, point out like made by men for men. It's like made by white men for white men. Yes, yes, yes exactly. <laughs> um, also, like yeah, able bodied and yeah, straight, wealthy, and, yeah. <laughs> Wealthy, yeah, the system works really, really well for particular people, yeah. Mm. Anyway, so the fact that men are so rarely held to account or if, or if they are it's for, you know, sexual violence that accompanies another crime, which Maris, I think you mentioned um, in another episode, so that's like physical assault or kidnapping mm. or, or if it's incest, um, it, it, it means that men who are enacting the majority of sexual violence, right? Mm. And now remember as well from what I said earlier, most rapes are enacted by a known person, so like usually a partner or a date or a friend. They don't involve weapons like what you said, Maris. Um, you know, they don't, there's no threat. They don't have to feel worried about the consequences. <laughs> so like they know that they're likely going to get away with it. Mm. And I know you've got a quote here, Maris, um, which I will have you read out or I can read out. You can read it out. Um, okay, great. Um, <laughs> one of your male participants said when you asked how much he cared whether the person he was having sex with wanted to be having sex with him, this was his response. Well, I would hope that they wanted to have sex with me, but if it came close to sex, it probably didn't worry me too much at all. It just... It just felt like that's that was my right, I guess. Like if it gets ever gets this close to that situation, like I didn't really think that they might not have wanted it. Mm, so yeah. in that, they're kind of saying like, well, I, it just wasn't a priority for me anymore. Mm-hmm. If you knew though, like if you knew that the, like let's say our conviction rates were higher for sexual assault mm. um, and rape, for instance, you, and we knew about it. We were educated about that as a community. We had we had res- <laughs> we had high levels of fucking respect of mm. bodily autonomy, right? Uh, you probably wouldn't think like that. You well, wouldn't be like, oh well. And if it you know, wasn't socially sanctioned from like your peers fully. and like all of the different things, like it's like even if we leave like the law out of it, because there's so many problems with like criminalization of things and whatever. That's a whole other conversation. But yeah. um, you know, it's like if it just wasn't considered cool, like, for men to be doing yeah, this and they're getting socially rewarded by their mates. Exactly. You're and not gaining that social capital for doing it and exactly. therefore we're social creatures. We just yes. want to belong. And on if that, men were, like, encouraged by, from, like, early ages to stay connected to their empathy, like, instead of it being, like, stared yeah. out from them, like, if they were kind of taught the same way women are to, um, you know, think about what others, like, think about others, others needs, like, as important, then they would also be thinking, oh, does she want to do this? Like, that last sentence, I never really thought that she might not have wanted it. It's saying, I never really thought about her at all. <laughs> I, I wasn't being empathetic. Yeah, I was just yeah. thinking about me. Mm-hmm. And also, we're not going to talk about it in this episode, but we will talk about it 100% in this podcast. When we're talking about the legal system, the courts, conviction mm-hmm. rates, we're, we're not necessarily expressing our um, support of mm-hmm. uh what is it um like being thrown in prison for like a punitive a, being like um a punitive approach yes yeah. exactly we're not saying 
that that is the answer to um to, to rape any culture. of the problems necessarily to any of the that's... damn problems <laughs> yeah exactly i just wanted to point that out when we are talking about convictions but yeah but because we'll it is that. the system we're working with we will obviously like working within sorry refer, we to, will that. refer to it um okay yes. so now that quote as well that participant's quote he was answering mm. that from how he felt when he was younger he was also telling me after he didn't feel like this anymore he'd become more aware about male entitlement coercion so on and he no longer thought that this attitude was okay but it really gives insight into both the level of entitlement and the lack of consideration of other people's wants, namely women's wants in his situation. Now, like, I don't know about all of you, but I would feel absolutely mortified to know that someone I was like wanting to have sex with or someone I had had sex with didn't want to and only did it because I ignored what they were trying to tell me, um, communicating with me and pushed past stuff and pushed them into it. And I'm just going to go into a little, um, personal uh anecdote here so like i to be honest i I actually dread that i did this to one of my ex-partners um who like he just didn't want to have sex as much as i did um but for a long time i didn't understand that because we we were often away from each other and he would be very like i can't wait to have sex we we like you know sexed and like do all this stuff during that time and then when we would actually be around each other he would want to at the beginning but then it would just go turn completely off and it was really confusing for me and we were in a relationship and he was a bit of an emotionally unavailable person so I got a lot of our connection from having sex and that's like a way that I felt like you know really close to him and stuff like that so it was sex was actually a really important part of our relationship um and as it is for a lot of people so I would think oh like it's me I'm not like being sexy enough or something like that so I would do these things to like instigate sex like wear lingerie or like whatever it might be um when he like came home from work or something thinking like you know he's going to be into this and that will show that I'm keen like maybe he's just being shy or like whatever um and sometimes he was into it but sometimes he wasn't and as soon as he wasn't I would be able to tell like he just wouldn't like kiss me back in the same way or he just wouldn't, he wouldn't instigate things. I would be always instigating. And I, and I would just suddenly realise and it would make me feel like so fucking shit. Like I felt so unattractive. I felt so like all of these things, right? But it, mm. it still didn't make me then be like, well, I'm going to keep pushing. <laughs> it yeah. was almost the opposite. It actually was like, holy shit, he doesn't want to have sex with me. I'm going to completely stop right now because how embarrassing. Yeah. Um, if I were to push past that. Um, so whilst I feel a bit like I might have um, like instigated sex in a way that might have felt coercive to him at times because he like I didn't know until like later, he clearly didn't want to. Um, I still was really I'm really confident that I always stopped whenever I got those signs. He never really had to ever be like, hey, I don't feel like having sex. I just knew. Um, and like, mm. you know what? We still we had a lot of conversations about this. I would bring it up with him. I was like, this is concerning me about our relationship. So it's not like I just, you know, we never spoke about it or anything. But anyway, I've gone on a bit of a tangent. But what I'm saying is like, like if I ever got signs that, I, that he didn't want to, I would absolutely stop trying to instigate and like I wouldn't have the desire to do it anymore. Whereas I think for some men, they actually are more humiliated for the sex not to happen mm. at all because they're actually not performing for the person they're with. They're performing for like their mates, their social status, all of that stuff and their perception yeah. of like sex equals manliness. So my being humiliated around like, oh my God, he does not want to have sex with me and therefore like 
I would absolutely not push it because I don't want him to do something he doesn't want to do. But like, there's a whole different set of reasons that men are performing that coercion. Like, does, is that making sense? That, yeah, of course. That really articulates it well. I think you know, linking back to the the reasons why uh, the driving forces that we've mm. been calling it behind male perpetrated violence. Maris, you wouldn't have been rewarded to push past no. that refusal. You didn't have the same motive. You didn't have the same objective, imperative to push past that a lot of men and boys, you know, feel that they do because of society. Your identity wasn't being necessarily your, your identity as a woman or your sexuality. But do you know what? That's being. actually really interesting as well. I just thought of this. I'm like, yeah, I was like, just going back to that guy's comment from earlier of like sexual arousal um, and whatnot. Like I was like, obviously so keen to have sex with my boyfriend on those times. So it's like, I was absolutely like a horny B, like, you know, really wanting that connection with him through sex. Yet I was absolutely able to pull up. Um, Fully. Like, which is just like, duh. Um, but, and the other thing like, is that, you know, like, women have been taught forever that, like, our worth is connected to how, like, sexually attractive we are mm. and all of this. So, another thing is, like, in him not wanting to have sex with me, I actually, my identity of, like, um, you're a hot ah. chick, like, it actually is really, I just, like, thought of, I'm like, you know, like, I actually am in that moment, my identity of, like, someone who's sexually wanted, which is what I've basically been told to be for my whole life, is compromised. Yeah. But it's funny I still don't coerce him (laughs) (laughs) isn't that fascinating yeah and I totally relate to that because I've also had um quasi relationships where there really was not a whole lot of substance but Mm. and also like depth and sex was really where I got most of that emotional Mm. connection Mm -hmm. as well as like uh the awesomeness and the pleasure of, of, of having sex, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, we are, we are taught. And I guess I've done a lot of like unlearning in this area of your worth is not just being mm-hmm. desirable, you know? Yeah. Um, totally. So yeah, thanks for sharing that That's anecdote. Okay. Um, and then, and actually like a participant quote that relates to that is a guy says, yeah, like men figure this out for themselves as well at a younger age that being persistent can get the outcome you want i don't see it as normal now but like when it when i was younger it was something almost considered normal and i think that that just goes to show like you know that's the outcome that you want like it's that is the priority that's i'm entitled to get the outcome i want and this is what will get that outcome (laughs) and that is like a really incredible example of that awareness Mm -hmm. Right, which I actually want you to talk about, like awareness of do men and boys in this context, heterosexual cis men and boys, know what they're doing. Yes, oh, my God. And it's something I get asked all the time, both at my job where I work with domestic violence and in relation to my PhD on sexual violence. So basically people want to know, like, but does he know what he's doing? Like, you know, like, is this this accidental? Like, you know, because often a lot of times... Boys will be boys. Yeah, and they want to... (laughs) They want to think it's accidental, of course. Like, they don't want to see mm. that person as, like, purposely, especially when it's relating to domestic violence, like, when it's consistent abuse and stuff like that. They don't want to think, oh, that person's actively choosing to do this to me. Right, of course. Yeah, boys will be boys really relates more to, like, the se- uh, sexual violence Yeah, yeah, but, and which is what we're talking about. So, I'll stick with that. So, like, um, basically, like, my answer, though, is, like, yes, they are aware 
um, in relation to both of those contexts. But um, like, I think there's different levels of awareness or what they're aware of. And so m- something like, say, like gang rape, my answer is like unequivocally, yes, they know what they are doing. They are actively exploiting and using power over another person to dominate. It's that disgusting like display of patriarchal homosocial bonding, like male bonding uh, grossness, mm. obviously. Um, but then for that more like subtle, normalised routine sexualised violence, like everyday coercion, my answer is still that they know what they're doing for the, for, the, for the absolute most part. But I do think that with some men there's a lack of understanding of how bad it is or a lack of understanding of what the impact can be on women because of the very way that it has been presented to them as normal sex through like movies tv role models whatever their whole lives so like of course there's like varying degrees of this um and many things even when like quote-unquote subtle and normalized are still so clearly demeaning that there's no way that men don't know that but like I do Mm. think that like there's a lot of young men who are introduced to sex with porn and they are getting messages as like this is what sex is even to the point of like women like this you know that's what porn is like essentially trying to say Exactly. And and to be a real man, this is how you will have sex. Yes. Are you man enough yes, for this exactly. sex? We will also, uh, like, just want to interject, we will explore porn yes. later in this podcast. Absolutely. Yes. So, it's a very quick touch on that. But so, like, there's a quote that I have here. One last thing I want to read to you all um, about like that really displays this incredible awareness, um, at least in hindsight, but my guess is also at the time as well, if they were to reflect about use of coercion. So I'm going to read it to you. It's kind of long, sorry. (laughs) Um, Okay. I remember this one time someone had come back to mine and she said, I don't want to sleep with you tonight. And I said, oh yeah, that's cool. But really I wasn't cool with that. I wasn't going to do to her anything that she didn't want to do. But at the time... I'm like, I didn't put these words to it, but the bottom line was like, I was going to coerce her. So what I did was like, okay, yeah, let's just kiss. And she was like, yeah, I'm cool with that. So we're kissing on my bed. And I said, can I take off your clothes? She's like, yep. But then I also took my clothes off. She didn't ask. And I didn't ask if I could take off my clothes. I just did it. Yeah. So when I took off my clothes, she then said, I don't want to have sex with you tonight. And I said, oh, okay. But I was a bit bummed. And I was like, okay, that's cool. But then I just started kissing her and I thought I might just keep kissing her and she might change her mind. And I, there was like grinding and stuff. And then I'm like, I'm just going to kiss her neck and see if that changes her mind, gets her in the mood sort of thing. And it wasn't about getting her in the mood. It was about getting my needs met. And essentially that was a coercive way of getting sex. She clearly said no, but then I'm like, well, your body's not saying the same thing. But I mean, at the end of the day, she's just fucking horny, but she didn't want to have sex. Whoa. That is like, it is like such nuanced awareness of how he actually moved her from um, like non-consent to then participating in, in sex without consent. But like what I love is the, at the very start where he says, I wasn't going to do anything to her that she didn't want to do, which like it like really highlights this belief that like, um, if I incrementally coerce her and make her like turned on, mm. then my coercion isn't as bad because like I've made it, like I've pushed past her no, but in a way where like she wants it now. And it's just like, mm. therefore it's almost like disregarding her actual non-consent. And as he said at the end, 
your body's not saying the same thing. Like, I know you said no, but I can now, I can tell myself that you're actually saying yes, even though you did. Yeah. And I remember, I think we mentioned this, I can't remember which episode, but the whole um, prioritizing her Mm. body over her mind and her will and her want. Sexual non-concordance. And I think we'll have a whole episode of that. Yeah. Have we mentioned it? I think we I feel have. Like we did in consent. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, we will talk to that because it's fascinating and definitely mm. an area that you looked a lot at. But yeah, it just shows that men have this like really clear understanding of communication and refusals. Like they fully get that, but they revert in their minds and at least in the way they tell the story to consent as this eventual compliance, like consent as an event, which you'll remember from our Consent 101 episode. So yeah. that quote is just full of those examples. It is. And uh, it's it's exquisite, really, the way <laughs> that it – yeah, I'm, I'm really glad you were able to have that conversation. <laughs> mm. um, and speaking of conversations, we are going to wrap this one up um, <laughs> because <laughs> um, in nice the interest segue. of time – nice segue. Thank you, everybody, so much for listening. This brings us to the end of our Consent and Coercion Woo. 101 series. <laughs> woo, woo. We really hope um, this episode and then the whole series has given you those tools and the frameworks and the knowledge that you can yeah, make sense of your experiences, that you can go out and have conversations with the people you love or the people you don't love. <laughs> and um, so we can start shifting not start shifting. I mean, people the have been. The shift has been getting worked on the for years. The shift is fucking <laughs> going on. But we hope, yeah, that we can together um, continue to contribute mm, to that shift. Totally. Yeah, absolutely. And as we said at the start, if these topics bring anything up for you, um, if you'd like to chat about it, call 1-800-RESPECT or reach out to someone in your network who might be able to provide some support or have a debrief with you or whatever it is you might need. Wonderful. So please subscribe to this podcast, everyone. You can follow us at sex and consent, all one word on Instagram. And we'll see you in the next episode, which will be part of our storytelling series. We cannot wait to see you there. See you there. Bye. Bye. Love you.